Hello, Small Fortune Podcast listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I very often talk about subject matter or point to specific concepts in an interview in this intro. In this case, I'm talking to Mark Freund, who is a personal friend of mine. He was at the eye of the storm, man. He was He's a banker. He was at First Republic when that bank uh, cratered in May of this year. Uh, he has chosen to go back to Silicon Valley Bank, which uh, cratered in March of this year. And it's really just a story of his experience being at the center of all that and the reasons why he's made the changes that he made. And uh, we talk a little bit about banking, but I think actually rather it's just a holistic conversation. There's nothing really to point out about it. Uh, I'd rather instead take this opportunity to have a quick conversation with my compadre, Jacqueline Corcoran, about podcasting and encouraging, hopefully, our listeners to look for us, uh, get a podcast platform on your phone or computer, and go find Small Fortune because we're, we're everywhere. I think we're on like 24 different podcast platforms. Everyone that I could set up i set up yeah one of the things we've discovered is that folks that are natural audiences people entrepreneurs people in the wine business and management these folks are not listening to podcasts we did not know that (laughs) we would really love it's it's we of course push out a little bit of marketing when we drop a new interview but if you don't see that marketing you may not know it's there if you are subscribed to us on a podcast platform and there's many free ones I use Pocket Cast personally. Then as soon as we download or upload a new episode, you'll get, it'll be in your inbox of that particular podcast platform. So um, help us out, man. Help yourself out because we've got some very good (laughs) interviews to come. So we're getting downloads, but we're just not getting quite as many followers. So I think people are just going to our website and listening, which is acceptable and great, but it would be better if you could follow us. So save yourself a step and be a follower. Thank you, Jacqueline. And with that, (laughs) we will segue to my conversation with Mark Freund. Today, Small Fortune listeners, we have Mark Freund. And if this were a uh, video podcast, you'd be able to see that he is with Silicon Valley Bank because he has an extremely flashy branded background to his Zoom conference. Uh, Mark, uh, I invited Mark here to talk to us about the fact that he, among others, was in the eye of the storm when the banking crisis hit earlier this year. Silicon Valley Bank uh, hit the wall on March 10th and then the wolf pack turned its attention to First Republic, where Mark was employed at the time. And, and that one went down on May 1st. And one of the things that people didn't realize if they were outside the industry was how incredibly important these two banking institutions were to financing in the wine industry. And just for myself, uh, the magnitude of that first March 10th thing, I just sat on the couch all day and <laughs> watched the financial markets, I was stunned. But at the same time, I was thinking about my friends like Mark, who were really in the middle of this. And so uh, I have asked Mark today to talk about banking in general and the wine business, and but also share as much as you can of your kind of personal experience in the middle of all that. Thanks, Carol. It's great to be here. Good to see you. 
It wasn't fun. I can tell you that much. I've been in banking for 35 years. And the PPP process that occurred in 2020 was probably the most difficult stretch of or the most difficult experience that I'd gone through in my banking career. Didn't, didn't wasn't sure that could be topped, but this year topped it with, with an exclamation point. Yeah, it was, like you said, the, I, I, I have incredible respect for Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. That's where I've spent the last 20 years of my career between those two institutions. Thought they were two of the, the better differentiated banks in the country in terms of being niche focused and not trying to be all things to all consumers and all businesses. In terms of the wine industry, both of the banks have a very deep history. SVB has been in this business for 29 years and First Republic for 20. And I think what's a little unique about both of the banks, not only do they have a lot of expertise in large client bases, but they they tend to serve, I would say, smaller and medium-sized wine businesses a little more than some of the other players in the market. There's lots of banks in, that serve the wine industry, and many of them are more differentiated. They're, some are more upmarket where they're dealing with really large wineries, but the vast majority of the wine businesses in the country are pretty small working with a lender that that wants to work with those uh, emerging uh, startup small wine businesses is rare and SVB and First Republic uh, both did it yeah and did it very well now of the, of the two i do feel in this maybe just a family bias for, towards silicon valley bank just because my dear old dad was the cfo of a tech firm and he they launched their ipo through silicon valley bank i i have a, a little one of those things they give away on transactions fund on yeah, my desk. So, yes, yes. I just have a personal connection to Silicon Valley Bank. But I think though that in their DNA prior to coming into the wine business was just support for entrepreneurship, which is one of the things we talk about on this podcast. But it was those two banks were you know, had incredible professionals like yourself, who I'd always been jealous about of all these years. Because when I was in commercial banking, I worked for these companies that had no stock options. Compensation, <laughs> and you guys had, were working for these ace banks with great stock option compensation, and then this happens. I just, it, I can't. It just sucks. Yeah, I had lots of friends who, because you know, they, those of us that work for SVB and, and First Republic, we believed in the institution so much that it's you. If you believe in a company that much, you tend to invest in it, and so you keep some of your liquidity and some of your retirement in, in the stocks but but anyway it's say lovey can you talk to me about your decision to go back sure yeah I, I think after when it became questionable whether first republic was going to survive independently i started having some conversations with some of my industry friends just to see if if i needed to pivot where i might want to go and so i talked to a number of institutions i talked to my, my former colleagues at scb where i was where I worked for 13 years, most of the leadership team here are folks that I work with and know and respect, and many of them are, are good friends as well. So I knew they would give me the straight scoop. And they were telling me that, I mean, their journey was a little bit different in that it, the failure and the, and the takeover happened pretty quickly, where ours, uh, First Republics, was a little more protracted. So, but what they were, what I was hearing is, you know, First Citizens is extremely excited about having a wine practice. They're trying they're asking what can they do to support the business and grow it the and 
I guess maybe most importantly, they're saying, you know, you guys really, the industry, you know what you're doing. We're not going to mess with what you're doing. And I was seeing SVB in the market on a couple of transactions where we were competing with them. So I knew they were still out there swinging despite what they had gone through. And so they were being active in the market, seemed relatively unimpacted, as unimpacted as you can be, given what we all went through earlier this year. So that was pretty important to me. I really wanted to continue for the rest of my career to work with small, medium-sized wineries. That's where I get a lot of enjoyment and a lot of dissatisfaction out of my job is helping small business owners and trying to share what I've seen in the 20 years working in this industry, try to help them make good decisions, connect them to the right people in the industry, try to help them avoid making wrong turns where I've seen others do that in the past. So that's fun for me. Yeah, I always enjoyed that aspect when I was doing the commercial relationship manager work as well. And so that's a good segue to to ask, what does a good banker do for somebody in, in generally, an entrepreneur generally, and in, in, in the wine space? Because it is the case that the wine industry is characterized as highly concentrated in smaller, closely held companies in, in which they, they can't go to other kind of capital markets. Really, it's equity, retained earnings, and bank lending. That's it. So you're one of the three uh, legs of the stool. So what yeah. does a banker do in this industry? Yeah, I think most of of my competitors, their institutions, the, the products and deposit products, the loan products, they're not all that differentiated. There's, I like to think that we can get pretty creative and and find interesting financial solutions for clients. But, but I think beyond sort of the products and services, really what a winery owner should look for is somebody that really knows the industry, someone that can share like I said, best practices can also share anecdotally what's going on with with their neighbors. Oftentimes, folks, if they run into, if wine owners, winery owners run into each other in social events, everybody tends to paint a rosy picture. And I think folks are really looking for how are, how's, how are my peers really doing? And we actually have some proprietary benchmarking data we can actually help benchmark your financial performance against a group of peer wineries so you can really see the data, how you stack up against against the competition. So I think that's important. You don't want, as a business owner, you don't want to have to explain your industry to your banker. This is all we do. We have 30 people that just focus on the wine industry. And so we know that we know the business well. We don't, we may not understand your business at the beginning of a conversation, but we understand the industry. So we know the right questions to ask. We we can be another set of eyes, especially if you're essentially a startup and you're just getting going in your business and you've done some projections, which ho- hopefully you've done. We can take a look at those and say, your assumptions here may seem seem a little aggressive to me. And so maybe you should dial that back or just try to help them set realistic expectations because everybody comes into this business guns blazing with great expectations for how quickly they're going to build their wine club and open up wholesale channels and my experience, and I'm sure it's yours as well, Carol, is it doesn't generally go as planned. So I think having someone who understands that, understands just the myriad of challenges in the wine business, it's agriculture, it's highly regulated, it's a luxury consumer product that people don't necessarily have to spend money on. It's There's 10,000 domestic wineries and another 10,000 
foreign wineries that are selling wine in the U.S. It's just highly competitive. It's just a it's just a difficult business to to do well. So, I think surrounding yourself not only your banker but your attorney, your CPA, the folks that you surround yourself with professionals that know the industry, because you may come into this business from another walk of life. You may be very financially astute, but maybe you're not so good at marketing. Maybe you're a marketing person, but your financial acumen or your that don't know that much about production or it's really difficult to do all the aspects to be a successful winery operator. Try to fill in the blanks and surround yourself with some folks that can help maybe plug some of those deficiencies that you may have in your skill set until you get up to speed or until you can hire people that'll supplement what you can do. Yeah, I this started this podcast sort of random concept, but it, what it's evolved into in a way is just having conversations with the, the ecosystem around wine, the wine industry, the advisors who, you know, and because it's, you know, each of us, let's say from a commercial finance or an M&A standpoint, we, we've, we've got a 30,000 foot look at over a, a number of industries over many years. If you're, you're running your own wine business, you, you know that like the back of your hand, but, uh, but not having that perspective that we get. So it's, it's having these conversations with professionals because we know a lot and perhaps somebody out dragging hoses around the cellar doesn't have the opportunity to hear the thing, the conversations that we have about the things that we know. So as a yeah, kind of the concept of it. So yeah. I did want to ask you your perspective. There are some very strong themes in terms of how to succeed or how to fail, what the risks are in the industry. I shared with you some of the common themes and what are your thoughts about how not to fail or how to succeed? If you were going to start a winery or advise somebody, what are the kind of main things you think they should keep an eye on? I think some of the themes that like Vic and Tim Allen had I share it's this, the business takes a lot of capital. And so I'm going to try to cover some new ground because that <laughs> one's, I think it's, uh, it's been talked about a lot. That's one. I, I think something they both mentioned as well is also just go slowly. Uh, and it gets to my earlier point about um, even if you put together projections, which you should, chances are some, some of the assumptions or some of the variables that, that factored into those projections aren't going to come to fruition. So you're going to need to pivot. And oftentimes that pivot will take more capital, but, but you don't want to overproduce out of the shoot. So let it's not the worst thing in the world if you're sold out of your current release a few months in advance and folks have to wait a little bit to get it. And that's much better than producing two years worth of sales each of your first several vintages and suddenly you've got a huge inventory overhang. What I always, I like to ask folks, what's your differentiator? What's, what's your story? How, how are you going to stand out from the thousands of other wineries? We don't, we don't need another winery coming into the, to the business. We've got plenty. And so it's really difficult to, again, just carve out your space in this industry and it's getting more difficult. It's if you want to go wholesale, there's consolidation in the wholesale channel. And so it's more difficult to get noticed that's a really difficult path to go. If your model, if you're a small winery and your model is, I want to go direct to consumer, everybody's focused on direct to consumer. And when you look at some of the, the trends in the industry, traffic is down in most of the major wine regions year over year. And we're not sure if that's a temporary thing because of what's going on with the economy. 
Uh, we're not sure if we've priced some folks, some visitors out of like Napa Valley in an effort to get to consumers who we think are more serious and are going to join the wine club, are going to be bigger buyers. We've we've kept raising the bar in terms of tasting fees. And so that's filtered out, I think, a, a lot of the, the consumer base that used to come here. And meanwhile, every the big players who are in who have wineries and retail, they've got lots of money they can throw at direct to consumer. So it's just a, it's a challenging, it's challenging whether you want to go wholesale or whether you want to go direct. So if you're a owner and a sole practitioner or a husband and wife team, somebody in the group needs to want to sell wine because the, the most critical success factor to me, in in my observation of wineries, it's not whether you can grow good grapes or make good wines. It's can you sell it? And that's everything hinges your success of your business is going to ultimately hinge upon that. So if if you don't want to go out on the road, you better find somebody who does to help sell the wine. And the consumers, distributors, retail accounts, they like to hear from the owner whose name's on the bottle or the winemaker will also do. But if if those folks don't want to hit the road and work the market, then you probably need to hire somebody who's versed in national sales if you're going to go the wholesale route and you need to hire somebody if you're opening a tasting room that has experience and, and knows how to successfully run a tasting room. So get the help that you need to sell wine because everything breaks down. I've seen some folks get into the business who really, who knew the wine industry and pulled the plug after three, four years because they're like, I just had no idea how difficult it was to sell wine. I thought I had good distributor relationships, thought I, I knew a bunch of people, key people in the restaurant industry. It's just trying to launch a new brand in this climate is really difficult. And it's probably not going to get any easier. It's You're going to see consolidation at all levels, which is just going to make it more difficult to try to launch new brands. Oh, for sure. For sure. Which, when you were talking about the fact that the you know, production, vineyard, making good wine, you can, you can do that. But selling is where the separates the men from the boys, as it were. It, it reminded me of some kind of a funny contrast that you and I have in our approach to wine, which is so you, it's ironic to hear from you, the product doesn't matter, doesn't move the needle, because you, of course, are a major wine aficionado. <laughs> and I, I have literally had clients say to me, Hey, do you want me to send you some wine so you can taste what our wines are like? And I've said, I don't care. No, I don't need <laughs> to know what your wine tastes like. I'm not even an expert. I do my part in consuming uh, the products that we all love. And I, I know a thing or two, but I'm not, but you're like a major expert. Now, do you think how does that inform your, it obviously doesn't inform your macro advice for how to run a winery, but where do you think that product and quality and all that come in? Or don't they? Because I tend to say, if can you sell it at a profit? Great. Yeah. You can't be making bad or, well, you can't be making flawed wines. So you've got to, you have to at least make something that's it's not commercially flawed, but there's different audiences for different styles of wines. So what I may, my palate's probably skews more European, more old world, but there's others that like more new world, more fruit forward, bigger, bolder, maybe slightly sweet, higher alcohol, lots of oak, 
that that's there's a huge audience that loves that kind of wine. It's not my style. If I'm talking to a, a prospective client just because they make maybe a style of wine that's not in in my wheelhouse, I'm not going to decide not to do business with them because I don't love their wines. But if if I try something that's really bad, then the common banker thing is you're like, well, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. So if you don't want to be mean, and tell, <laughs> tell them their wine stinks. Oh, okay. That's brilliant. It's an interesting nose to it. That's yeah. So that's oh, now good. you're going to have to oh, come up. I don't with love the... your wine. <laughs> well, now you're going to have to come up with another code because yeah, everybody true. that you know who says uh, you say <laughs> it's interesting, they're going to be like, wait a minute. Yeah, I'll come up with another another <laughs> adjective. <laughs> yeah, there but you go. yeah, so it's you've got to make you have to make a good product. You don't have to necessarily make the best product. It's got to be reasonably branded. You can't have a hideous label. It needs to look pretty professional and good and looks look like a high-end product. But that's, again, that's just like the entry-level requirements. Then you got to figure out what's your path to market. And a really good example of somebody who didn't have a tasting, this was Realm Sellers 20, I'm going to say 20 years ago when the brand was pretty, pretty early days. And they didn't have a tasting room. They had a very good mailing list following and they did a, they were maybe one of the first that I had heard of that sort of took their show on the roads because they didn't have a, a retail facility here where people could come visit them. They found out who, who were buying their wines and where they had concentrations around the country. And then they took, they would set up dinners in Chicago or Charlotte, North Carolina, and have some of their big borrower or some of their big clients be the hosts for the event. And then those hosts would invite other friends who were into wine as well. And so they just, they took the show on the road. And I think that's becoming more prevalent, but you gotta, you just have to find, and that that was a great way for them to build their markets. And they didn't have the conventional fallback of a tasting room on the trail or on Highway 29 that folks would just stumble on. So they had to, to get out and hustle to build their brand and it worked really well. So that's just an example of just try to figure out how you're going to differentiate yourself. And in some cases, I've seen wineries that that had a number of minority investors in the business. So they, after they exhausted all their friends and families' funds, then they brought in some outside investors to come in for a small piece of ownership. And those folks were strategically scattered across the country. And so you now you've got ambassadors who have an equity stake who can say, look, I own this. I'm an owner in this wine business in California or Oregon or Washington, and and they can help put events together for you in those markets to help build your brand. So a couple oh, that's of an interesting. Yeah, I like that one. I hadn't hadn't thought of that as strategic investor based on geography. Uh, the other, spoke uh, having another interview come out where we talk a little bit about private placement. So that's right on point with that conversation as well. So there's lots of congruity. Any other tips or tricks either in operations or finance or anything? Yeah, I think when you're ready to have a conversation with a uh, a potential financial partner, be it an investor or uh, a banker, if you're to that point where you're where you think you're ready to to take on some institutional uh, capital or debt, is come to that first meeting really prepared, and that that'll warm your banker's heart. If you come maybe ahead of time, send projections so you you can start the meeting with with the your prospective financial partner having a decent understanding. If you've done a business plan, send them that. 
if you've done a financial forecast, send them that, or maybe last year's financial statement so you can have a running start to the discussion. But if you come to that first meeting prepared, that's going to make a good first impression on the prospective financial partner. And, and it's going to increase your chances of maybe developing a relationship and, and maybe getting a loan if you're looking f- for that. Also, a couple of other tips. Don't be, once, once you're in a relationship with a financial institution, don't be afraid to share bad news. And when you see storm clouds on the horizon, I probably tell them about it uh, earlier rather than later, because if you break bad news to your financial partner really late in the game, they're oftentimes, it's more difficult for the banker to, to address if you had a very short harvest, for example, and so you don't have as much wine to sell. And so you're going to miss your debt service coverage covenant or something like that for the upcoming year. You want to be way out ahead of that kind of stuff. It gives it because your banker wants to be way out ahead of it with his credit people. And so you just, you don't, nobody likes surprises. We want to hear that your wine club is up 10% year over year and that you just landed a great distributor in New York, New Jersey. But also, we also want to hear when things aren't going quite as planned because then we can pivot. If there's a hole in the cash flow because of some extraordinary event, the bank might be able to help plug that cash flow hole and do an increase to your line of credit or something like that. But if it's if it's if you're reacting after you've already tripped a, a loan covenant or something, it's more difficult to try to be helpful. The other thing is just as you come into that initial meeting, once you've decided to work together, or maybe even this should be part of your decision making process, is just set expectations for both sides. Tell if you want to meet with your banker every month, let them know that. I mean, most of my clients don't want to meet with me every month, but maybe you do. Or, or conversely, if you want to meet with your banker once a year or twice a year, let them know that as well. Let them know your expectations. And from the bank side to the client, we should be telling you what our expectations are too. There's in this section in the term sheet, there's financial reporting that you're, you need to produce on a timely basis. So please be cognizant of that and make sure you get us that information in a timely fashion. As you go, this is a relationship in communications, like any relationship, communications is paramount and you need to set expectations. And again, things aren't going to go perfectly according to plan, but if you're if you've got an open line of communication and you're talking to each other, you should be able to deal with sort of the bumps in the road. Yeah, it's funny. Actually, ironically, that's excellent advice for entrepreneurs and business owners who are borrowing money from banks. As you started spooling out these recommendations, I could not help think about the president of Silicon Valley Bank in January, February, March, where his bank was the Fed, the Federal Reserve. And I, one wonders if he had communicated a little bit sooner that there was trouble in paradise. But that's so uh, interesting parallel there, or irony. Um, but you are now owned by Citizens Bank, which uh, is it's the first. Yes. I bet. My bet. Which, We're the first uh, Citizens Bank. Yes. Okay, <laughs> there you go. Uh, first Citizens, which from the outside looking in, seems to have done a good job, as far as I can tell. And, and certainly your decision to move back, I think, ratifies that sense that they're managing this quite well and keeping the band together and, and continuing to do good work with entrepreneurs in the wine space. Yeah, I know they've been, they're what you would want from a parent. They're asking the questions, how can we be supportive? How can we help help the wine division 
grow and expand our business. So it's, you're doing all the right things. So it's great. And it's a, a very interesting bank in that it's closely held by a, a family uh, out of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so we're the largest closely held bank in the country, publicly traded, but closely held. Oh, fascinating. But, yeah. Thank you for coming and telling me and my listeners. <laughs> your story or listener. <laughs> I, I have enjoyed hanging out with you over the years and uh, I'm glad you're in a place after all that turmoil, you're in a good place. Me too. Yeah, it's been, uh, I'm looking forward to 2024, but I'm ending 23 on a high note. So it's, it's good. I'm sure it'll be an interesting year next year with just to see where the industry goes. There's some headwinds out there. So we'll, we'll sure. see. Yeah, for sure. It's always tough and it's always cyclical and we get through it. Thanks for joining me, Mark. Thanks, Carol. Appreciate it. Email us at smallfortunepodcast at gmail.com. And we'd really love it if you could follow us on your favorite podcast platform and like, review, or share the show. Thanks. Quick question. Did you listen past the outro? I listened to one of the outros, um, but... I didn't the first I didn't listen to the Tim Allen or no well what we do by the way just forewarned if you listen to the Tim Allen and then there's the outro there's Jacqueline you can need a little music Jacqueline's hey please listen to our podcast if you listen past it we're putting outtakes in the bag okay I heard so. I did listen to one of the outtakes yes okay right on okay so yeah I don't know what we're going to do here if anything at all but <laughs> for our vast audience but do you have a podcast platform on your phone? I've got Apple, yeah. Okay. Please download us. Okay. We, then we'll have one more listener. <laughs> I will do that. Okay. <laughs> so it's so that you have your own app or No, if you go onto the iPhone podcast app, yeah. And you Google and you put in the search bar small fortune. Okay there will be. And then you hit follow or subscribe. I don't know. And then okay. when a new one drops, it'll go straight to your podcast inbox. But All yes, right. this is one of our, Jacqueline and I both love podcasts. And so you, you tend to project onto others your own preferences. And so we just assumed everybody was listening to podcasts. No, they're not. I really should. Because when I ride my bike and I'm up in the mountains and I can't get radio reception or anything. I, I I don't put headphones on or anything, but I'll put a earbud in my in one ear. No, anyway. there's that's fantastic stuff. Yeah, funny. Like I listen to Conan O'Brien needs a friend. Yeah. Flipping hilarious podcast. I like to listen to Bloomberg Markets. They have an Odd Lots podcast on finance and economics, and there's just tons out there, including yeah. a, a small little effort in the wine industry. Yeah, it's good. <laughs>